0: Uh, Thank you very much, uh, Ben. So when I have come to America, there are many things I look forward to. And one of them is a decent introduction. (laughs) So I wasn't sure what to expect from an introduction from an Englishman. (laughs) But clearly, Ben, the bug has caught you. (laughs) You're beginning to get very flowery. I think you should clap for him. I mean, it's really happening. (laughs) uh, Thank you very much, Ben, and it's uh, uh, truly a joy to to connect uh, in this way. I am uh, truly gratified and want to say thank you very much, uh, Ben and your team, uh, for inviting me. uh, seriously to thank uh, my son Joshua, uh, daughter in love, Olivia, our beautiful grandchildren. Uh, Theodora and I, Theodora lives in Kampala, um, he as a visiting fellow at uh, Fuller, visiting scholar uh, for one year and, uh, and Joshua and Olivia insisted this is going to be my home church while I'm here so uh, they have such huge influence on me. Um, they don't call me a bishop at home. It's really terrible. Uh, they don't know I'm a bishop, I mean. So thank you very much. I'm truly delighted to be a part of this fellowship. I come to you as a brother, and truly a brother. I come to you as a fellow seeker of the kingdom of God. But I come also to you as a visitor. I have come to your home your church community, your city, your culture. I have come to your place, your space. The gift of a visitor is especially to the host. Did you know that one of the metaphors of who the Holy Spirit is is the hospitable one. It's amazing. And so I think the opportunity for you, um, and you have been awesome, is to be hospitable. Thank you, thank you, thank you. But you also have another gift and opportunity to be open to disruption. For a visitor does one thing successfully, he disrupts, she disrupts. Some of the disruption is pleasant, and so you welcome it, you cook good food. Isn't it true that when you really want to feel and adjust to the disruption, you cook food that the visitor will connect with? I could tell you a story how my first time in America, there was a dinner for international students, and I looked forward to it. I was in the Midwest, and it was winter. I just started international dinner. And so I went for this dinner, and what did I find? So there was rice, and I thought, wow. And it was rice salad. Cold, And there was potatoes, and I thought, wonderful, potato salad, <laughs> everything cold. And I was like, okay, anyway. <laughs> Advent is a great opportunity to be hosts. It is possible, therefore, that I will disrupt you. But receive the disruption because what the visitor has is a perspective, is a way of seeing things that you may not have seen. In fact, it's even possible that the visitor might see things in your sitting room that you've taken for granted. I have always argued that sometimes one of the reasons we need to change churches is because often God becomes part of the furniture because we get used to him. So Advent provides a great opportunity for you, for us. As we look back to the first coming and we look forward to the last coming, waiting. Let me just give you a footnote here because every metaphor has difficulty. The metaphor of Advent has a a problematic, and this is it. Think with me. It's that It's organized around a linear timeline. A linear timeline. So you have Advent, right? Which has Christmas. And then the next major season uh, is what? Hello? is Lent and Easter and Pentecost. All right? It's linear. So it's possible we might get into this... Waiting for Pentecost, the linear model. And uh, of course, it's one of the challenges of cultures that are linear in their understanding of time. This whole notion of progress, by the way, it's a facade. But I think part of the challenge of this linear understanding is that we think we are therefore waiting for Pentecost, waiting for the calming, a historical timeline. And yet, actually, what is true is that we are in it already. There is something deep, significant, of which we are a part now. Remember Jesus' prayer? Your kingdom come on earth as it is in? heaven we are not people waiting for heaven we are a people groaning longing for heaven come here we are a people who reflect something of the power of the presence of the kingdom of God we are a people of heaven come down amen so we are not waiters But if we should use the metaphor of waiting, I invite you to consider Paul's metaphor of groaning. For you see, the Spirit has been given. The Spirit came. Christ is with us. There is this whole uh, heresy called, what would Jesus do? WWD, right? You know it? What would Jesus do? What a heresy? It's not what he would do, it's what he is doing. For he is present by his spirit. So Paul says, where we are is the place and the time of groaning. for he writes in Romans chapter 8, I'm still doing introduction. I consider that our present sufferings are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed. For creation waits, creation waits in eager expectation for the children of God to be revealed. For creation was subjected to frustration, not by its own choice. And we could go on verse 21, creation itself will be liberated. And then verse 22, we know that the whole creation has been groaning as in pains of childbirth right to the present time. This picture, this metaphor, groaning. So what I come with you is not about waiting, it's about groaning. And the passage that was read for us beautifully gives us a hint, a window into what is it that the Holy Spirit is seeing naming and doing in this moment so that we are part, so that we are being blown away. Remember how Jesus says, how does the spirit work? He blows wherever he wills. What's your job and mine? Locate and jump there and be part of the blowing of the spirit. I focus my attention on Mary's waiting and the title is God Who Sees Names and Acts. I have to be honest that the inspiration for this theme was given to me by my dear friend, Mark Lubberton, uh, president of Fuller, who is, being ret- who is retiring now. And he wrote an excellent book. I commend it to you, The Dangerous Act of Loving Your Neighbor, Seeing Others Through the Eyes of Jesus. There, he develops this framework of seeing Naming and acting. And so to the story. And every time you hear a particular story, you are listening for the story, the bigger story. For every story is simply a presence of the bigger story. The bigger story, if I don't get there, are the purposes of God, is what God is doing. That's the bigger story. But the smaller story, it's the story of two women, Elizabeth and Mary. I'm sorry to disappoint. I won't talk about Joseph today. And it's amazing, actually, that the entire Luke chapter 1 is completely silent on Joseph, except to mention him as the fiancé. That should wake you up, men. Because in a patriarchal society, which the Jewish society, first century society was, that a man is invisible is amazing. Hello, men. You know, this world of ours. (laughs) And it's good. Two women. Elizabeth and Mary. (laughs) These two women, we don't have time to tell their story. And I really don't have capacity to tell their story. And in some way you might say, so Block, what are you doing speaking about two women? Why can't a woman be the preacher for today? And it's even harder because these two women have an experience that I completely have no clue about. It's pregnancy. Any women who've been pregnant, put up your hands. I want to honor you. Please clap for these women, women who have been pregnant. That's not to say anything about those of us women who have not been pregnant. It's really not a statement. Please, okay? I'm simply saying there's something about pregnancy that I think is unbelievable, amazing, awesome, impossible, everything, everything. (laughs) I asked my uh, uh, daughter-in-law about her first pregnancy. (laughs) I nearly called my wife to ask her again about the first pregnancy, Joshua. I wish I could speak to every woman about their first pregnancy. For these two women, it's their first pregnancy. So, women who've been pregnant, can you whisper to your neighbor what it was like? What is it that stands out? (laughs) No, anyway, please create time for those testimonies because we don't have the time now. But the interesting thing is that these two women, of course, are taking us, leading us to the story of two young boys who were born to them, John and Jesus. The two stories are connected, and Luke connects them. We don't have much time to get into the connections. They're just amazing. Of course, Elizabeth and Mary are relatives. Um, Mary is the younger cousin, little girl. But these two women are both completely, their pregnancies are completely, totally unusual, like unusual, right? Very unusual. The first, Elizabeth, what do we know about her? Advanced in age. What is worse for Elizabeth is that she's not just advanced in age, she's carried a stigma her entire married life. As the barren woman. She's carried that stigma. We don't know how many years. But if Elizabeth may have been married at the age of 15, 16, which didn't have been uncommon then, are you working with me? So how old do you think Elizabeth was at this time? Evidently, it's post-menopause. Are you with me? because evidently the body had no more capacity apparently. So what age shall we give her? 55? Any doctors here? 55, 60? So how many years has she been bearing this stigma of the barren woman? How many years? Excuse me, are you working on these things? (laughs) Am I the only one here? Okay. So give her <laughs> 35 years, 30 years, what do you think, 40, my God, just imagine, how many of you are 35 years and below, put up your hands, all right, uh, we, we could be more, people here are very shy to participate in preaching, I don't know what's wrong here, you know, right? So imagine your entire life, or <laughs> well, those of you who've been, your ent- it's stigma, the barren one. The other woman is really young. She's 15, 16. She's really a little girl. And being a little girl, the only thing that is known about her, she carries this beautiful picture of a virgin. Don't misunderstand. Don't impose your sexual ethics of today to that time, okay? Please, I beg beg you, please, I beg you, okay? Read the text within its context of then. Don't impose your sexual ethics. Let's listen to theirs then. So virgin is really a great idea. But she's young. What's the expectation that her first baby There will be a man. But this passage has no man. And that's part of the challenge. When the angel tells the story, you are going to deliver a baby. And I honestly do not know what the conversation is between Mary and Gabriel. You know, there is only one liner. How shall this be? But I'm sure that liner is a whole conversation. Massive. It's like, hello, you are a joker. This, God, this doesn't happen. Hello, this does not happen. It has no logic. It has no history. It has no... Uh, please, uh, please, do you also recognize the shame? Because when you say the Holy Spirit will overwhelm you, excuse me, whoever has sex with the Holy Spirit? Do you understand? <laughs> hello? Because we know how babies are come into the world, right? <laughs> Don't we know? And then the angel says, the Holy Spirit will overshadow you. Ah, hello. How will that be? We know how people sleep. <laughs> it's very unusual. It's very troublesome for both. So the story is told. Elizabeth gets pregnant. And what does she do? You will understand, she stays the first trimester hidden. The second trimester, <laughs> hidden. And we are told she only comes out at the end of the second. Did I get the thing correctly? This whole trimester thing is completely fresh for me. <laughs> when we we're, when were married, they did not count those things in trimesters, but now you do, right? So second. So, Do you, can you imagine the angst, the, and she comes out to the public for everybody to see, for the shame has been taken away. Mary, I think, I think, goes to visit Elizabeth when the morning sickness has begun. (laughs) All right? Are you with Mary? Mary? What is Mary's anxiety? Uh, You know, what what is in Mary's heart? I actually suspect Joseph doesn't yet know fully what is happening. I suspect. I'm only suspecting. Joseph, of course, has been told what is going to happen. And he's having to walk through it. So the first thing we can say about these two women is that not only in the culture are they invisible, because in the culture, women were invisible. Do you remember the story of how Jesus fed how many thousands and how many were counted? The women were absent, invisible. But not only... Are they visible? They are named Elizabeth and Mary. Hey, good people. God sees. God names Elizabeth and Mary. So the world may not see. In fact, there are many things the world does not see. But, Hallelujah, the Lord, our God, the Creator, He sees. And when He sees, there is nothing impossible with God. Hallelujah. A footnote. We live in a culture and a society that misperceives and misnames. It's a culture in which people are called white, others are black, others are people of color. It's a culture of misperceiving and misnaming, they are poor. They are homeless. In other words, they have no name. They are Christian and the others are non-Christian. Believer, non-believer. We live in a culture in which those with power misname by naming the other as non being, non-Christian, non-believer, non, non, non-white, none. We live in a culture in which those on the margins, those who do not occupy the center are invisible. We live in a church that does not see those on the margins. And I beg you, please listen. Vintage church, I'm not going to speak to you about what you see. I want to speak to you about what you do not see. As an individual, it's what you do not see. It's your blind spots. It is your misperceiving and your misnaming. I hope we get there. Mary, a virgin to be married to a man, Joseph. Mary gives us a glimpse on this crisis of misperceiving and misnaming. And it is that song that is now known as the Magnificat where I would like us to turn. For Mary sings a song that I would argue captures this truth. God sees, God names, God acts verse 46 my soul magnifies the Lord and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior he has been mindful of the humble estate of this servant God has seen me hallelujah you see friends When I first encountered the West, Europe, North America, I didn't know I was black. I was told I was black. I, my wife arrives and she's speaking English. And the first thing is, hey, you speak English. We didn't know that that was a thing to be wowed about. In other words, entering here, invisible. Whoever you are, wherever you are, if you live in a place, in a time, may I speak to you women? If you have this sense of being misperceived, misnamed, Mary, you are Mary. Let's have conversations about Mary. Friends, let's talk about Mary and Elizabeth, their experience of the world is a world that misnames, misperceives, and therefore, what's the action? Injustice, for misacting is injustice. Mary rejoices and praises God who sees and names. Dignity. Mary says, Verse 49, for the mighty one has done great things for me. The mighty one, the almighty. This is about how power is exercised. For here, Mary is saying the one who has ultimate power, sovereign power, the power to create the power. He has seen the lowliest, the most humble, the most marginal. It's amazing. This is about power, friends. We're having conversations about power. Friends, the gospel is the power of God. And we have a problem, especially among us evangelicals, because we've reduced the gospel to this whole thing called s- salvation, going to heaven, um, my soul, my spiritual. And I'm like, please, this thing is about power. The Holy Spirit's power. The mighty one has done great things for me. Holy is his name. How the power of God acts. That's the question. How does God work? How is the power of God manifested? And here Mary gives us the genius. It's that he acts on behalf of the margins. He acts on behalf of the unseen. He acts. Do you remember what Jesus says? Matthew chapter 25, I was hungry, you fed me, I was thirsty, you gave me water, I was, do you remember that? Please read it again. He didn't say you went to church and you spoke in tongues and you were awesome, you were a pastor, I'm very sorry, pastor. He doesn't say you were part of the worship team. No, 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 no. It is that you saw what the world didn't see, you acted in Jesus' name. Let's keep going. But Mary says this, it's not just that the Lord has seen me. Verse 50, his mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. His mercy extends to those. In other words, Mary is saying, this is not about me. It's what God does. Don't look at me. He, God, sees what else does god see god sees what people don't see he sees the inner person while i'm here preaching and getting hot he he recognizes he he recognizes he sees what you guys don't see you may think what powerful vision. no god knows The deeper fear of the heart. He sees, he sees the longing of our hearts. He sees the yearning to be to the kingdom of God. He sees, hallelujah, hallelujah, that God sees. And when he sees, he acts. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. Power. How does God use his power? Here is a footnote, and especially us. Charismatic, spiritual, and on. Part of our problem is every time we're having conversations about the Holy Spirit at work, we are think about me, my family, my situation, my, my, me, myself, my, eh me, myself, and hello. So the world revolves around you. This is the tragedy of Western society. The tragedy of Western society is individualism. Let me be honest with you. Bear with me, Pastor. I can hardly sing in this church. Do you know why? All our songs are me and myself and my God. I I can hardly sing. We don't even know how to sing together. Have you noticed? We are here standing together. Pastor, come. Please come. Please come. And we are here standing together. I didn't want him. (laughs) That's what you do when you... So here we are singing. And we are in church together. Okay. And the song we are singing is i love you lord and i'm like hello why can't we learn to sing let's go we love you (laughs) it's good (laughs) are you with me where is my brother the worship pastor hello (laughs) and i told my wife my wife is amazing every time we finish church my wife is humming songs in the bathroom and I said to her, but darling, you never hum my psalms in the bathroom. You're just humming the songs we sang at church. Guys, you have such a huge influence, impact on what people think. That they're humming, I, myself, I, me, and my God. So consequently, church is a reflection of a culture that is honestly, frankly, so individualistic and hedonistic and has completely missed to see the other. But who is this other? Mary gives us who they are. He has performed mighty deeds. He has scattered, hey, he has scattered the proud in their innermost thoughts. Ah, There's a, a way God sees the proud. Let's keep going. Verse fifty-two. He has brought down rulers from their thrones. Hey, there is a way God sees proud people. He's the way he sees presidents and prime ministers, people who have the Arsenal. Uh, I'm not talking about Arsenal, the football team. I'm talking about the, the weapons of war. <laughs> you remember the whole thing about weapons of mass destruction? Do you remember that story? You know, the God has a way he sees America. And the God has a way he sees Honduras. Hello, are you with me? Are you tagging? Um, forgive me. I know I'm not supposed to tell you this, but I will say it. Do you know that thing called make America great again? Uh, hey, hello? Did you, did you hear me? Make America great again. What should the people who follow Jesus say? That God does not see America in the way in which we think. God does not see the church in the way we think, make the church great. Who said? He's brought rulers from their thrones, but lifted the humble, the despised, the unknown. He has filled the hungry with good things. The hungry. The hungry. Okay, here is a challenge. This is Christmas. Christmas is a time of feeding ourselves. You know that. If the Lord feeds the hungry, how does Vintage Church become a church that sees and commits not to feed us, but to feed the hungry? He has helped. He has filled the hungry with good things, but he has sent the rich away power let's make a confession you and i that if we were to think who we are in the conceptual frame of this passage let's be honest that you and i are the privileged ones we are the people who connect effectively with the powerful right right um Yeah, we are. What we don't easily acknowledge is that we are also the proud ones. Because we want everybody to look like us. We want everybody to come and adjust to us. You know how that is? We are the rich. What does Jesus say? How does God work with the rich the proud, the powerful, in the sense of power of money, power of culture, power of degrees, power of interest. Inch- How does God deal with us? He scatters. <laughs> How else does he do it? He brings us down. What else does he do? He empties. Brothers and sisters, let's wake up. We are not the favored ones. Who are the favored ones? It's the humble, the hungry. What is Jesus telling us? Connect with those who are unseen by the past structures of this world. So the challenge for you as an individual and in your family, that's the point. Who do you not see? And I honestly want you to name them. And of course, that's the problem. Because you don't see them, you can't even name them. So this is a journey. The first point on this journey is to renounce our pride, our cooptation and captivity to riches, our captivity to the American dream. It's not a gospel dream. but there's something else that God is doing. In bringing down and in scattering the proud and the rulers, God sees structures and systems that perpetuate invisibility, that perpetuate marginalization, that God sees, hallelujah, God sees the unjust trade system of the world, God sees the injustice against the people who are called immigrants, and yet all of us are immigrants. God sees these structures, and here is the good news, God is breaking it down hallelujah and who does god want to use this church this church where in pasadena so i challenge the elders of this church You've got to ask, what does this mean for a church? To engage in the, the demolition of systems and structures that create and sustain invisibility of the other. What is this church going to do? This church is going to say, how are we more effective on the street? Not the places where Coronado Springs, you know that, they have such amazing restaurants, my goodness. I have been there, just so you know. You might think this bishop spends his time in the, you know, no, I don't. And this is why I must repent. I am like you. We are together in this. We really must renounce the blindness of our privilege. Privilege blinds. I call upon you there for now. You've been on that journey, be committed to renounce. Live a life of renunciation. When you walk into the f- walk into your kitchen area and you see the fridge and it is packed it's an invitation to renounce cooptation and captivity to greed then name put names put names how would that be? Ah, what does it mean to act justly I close with those words of prophet Micah what does the Lord require of us to act justly to love mercy and to walk humbly with God. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Ben.